And guys, welcome to the season two premiere of Killinois with Bird and Cam. This is Bird, and it's always with me, Cam. How you doing, Cam? I'm good. I've had an eventful week. Um, it's been an interesting week, to say less. Yeah, and, and it's Valentine's Day. It is. Happy, happy Valentine's Day. First thing we'll wear this day, whatever you guys yeah, celebrate. There we go. That's, that's, see, I'm a recovering uh, hopeless romantic, so uh, this is <laughs> this is like I'm just one this day. You know, I'm I'm that kind of type of petty person to see uh, if I see like a lovey dovey post, I'm going to report it for spam and terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not petty. Especially terrorism. <laughs> terrorism. Especially terrorism. Especially. <laughs> I want to see y'all niggas all happy. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I can live my life that way too, except I have a boyfriend, so I'm. Well, I won't. Upset. I won't flag your post, but I'm just. <laughs> Mine are fun though. Mine are fun posts. Like, ooh, I could eat you alive. Okay, you see context. I, 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 okay, you brought it back because when you said I can eat, you're like, whoa, wait, wait, where's she going with this pal? But uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just. Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh boy. <laughs> but um, this uh, like I said, we are on the season two, um, season one uh for yeah. two novice rookies. I uh, say we did a pretty damn job, you know, patting ourselves on the back right here. Yeah. And um, you know, when we started this, uh I knew in the back of our my, back of my mind that if we got this far, we had to do a Saint Valentine's Day massacre episode on Saint Valentine's Day. It just writ itself. Wrote it itself. Ha- you have to. There we go. It writ it writ itself. <laughs> it writ itself. You just yeah, have to do I, it. I have two college degrees and I can't speak speak for shit. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it's just because you're so excited. There's just so yeah. much about this. Just oozing off the brain. Exciting. Exactly. Oh. The brain is melting. Yeah, and oh, um, we have a new sponsor. We do indeed. Um, we are proud and glad to um, partner this season and onward with uh, Media Alley, and those are the good folks. Uh, Jetman, Jetman, and um, my brother from another mother. Jetman is my brother from another mother, but uh, one of my main mans, uh, Mackle, Mike Jones. I was waiting for the who. Uh, oh, great. Yeah, who? you. I'm like, you're like Mike, just... I, I set it up perfectly well, for you. Now, now that he, like, now that I know Mike Jones, I'm like, I just am like, you guys, I know Mike Jones. Yeah, I mean, and... yeah, I, I never got that. Like, I was like, Ed, I know that, I know he had, I know he had to get that, like, Thousands of times in high school, and when y'all first met him, I you did that when I first met him. He's like, Mike Jones. I go, Who? <laughs> <laughs> I pulled off so good, too. And then I was like, Okay, but for real, what's your name? And he's like, Mike Jones. I go, Get the fuck out of here. Let me see your ID. It was Mike Jones. <laughs> yeah, and both of them have been on um, Jet. You may have heard him uh, the last couple episodes with the R. Kelly. And oh boy, um, we'll probably cover that uh, on a later episode. I mean, that just happened with the. Apparently there is another videotape out with R. Kelly, and uh, so this is gonna be fun. Yeah, and we should say that because I just have a good inclination that there may be, uh, even though he's like the Teflon Don, with like these case, like these investigations, just going nowhere. No I mean, when you have a tape, this is kind of like the smoking gun. This might be it for him. 
But my only thing is, what if he just says it's not him? Kind of uh, like in the last day. Uh, well, I, they said something about, because um, in the first trial, they had specified that um, in the tape, there was a noticeable mole. He has a noticeable mole on his spine, the back of his spine. Not the back, that just sounds weird, but on his back near his spine, he has a noticeable mole. And they said that they couldn't find the mole or it was uh, hard to see to to uh, definitively make a description but in the scene according to cnn they saw the mole in this new tape so <laughs> um, it's gotta be him. it's gotta be not his face not his face or his voice that mole <laughs> so, that mole's gonna decide if it's him oh yeah well mole <laughs> wow so um let's hopefully, talk about hopefully he doesn't get out of the country first though yeah yeah and that's thing um i don't know if you know about like roman pulaski uh he was a uh, famous director, uh, like in the '60s and the '70s, and he had got caught up with a statutory rape case. And before they even went further with the proceedings, he flew to like I don't know, was it Germany or Poland or whatever? And, or like Switzerland, one of yeah, the neutral countries. Yeah, and he has been like, he's been there for like the last forty years. And the crazy thing was, like, he still was, like, directing movies, and he even won an Oscar for, in 2003 or 2004 for The Pianist, and, like, yeah, like, Hollywood was still, like, embracing him in this (laughs) weird way. Now, with the Me Too era and stuff, they finally removed him from the Academy, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, and R. Kelly had um, said something about uh, this uh, new tour in Australia, like, and like random countries that people don't countries, like, like yeah. do tours in, I guess. I don't know. He, he, no, gonna... no disrespect to Australia. I would love to go there one day, but you should just see that where he's touring. It's just really random places. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just not asylum and shit. Yeah, they're just all out of the country. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so, let's talk about what we're here for, um, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, um, today as we are recording, and we should get this out, or we're gonna get this out before midnight, but most likely you guys are gonna listen to this on the 15th or whenever you guys, I know my, um, best, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Frank, uh, ardent listener of the show, and, like, he, I, he was listening to the Young Pappy episode, like, he finally yay. got to the Young Pappy episode, like, a week ago, and uh, he had mentioned um, <laughs> you were reading his. Uh, we had uh, when we were talking about a post that Young Pappy had did. Uh, he, he was having a party, and the police had stopped it. And Young Pappy had um, made a Facebook post, and he just yeah, just a lot of you know bragging and stuff. And Frank had said when, the way you had read it, he was dying laughing. Like, <laughs> so I know I'm actually really really funny. Yeah, you know that. <laughs> I'm actually like, I'm like that really awkward, dry humor where like, you feel so bad for me, you laugh. So it's like, I'm pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That looked like a yeah. <laughs> What's that over there? <laughs> but but yeah, back to the um to our uh main topic at hand. Um, yeah, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, uh, before we get into that, um, 
Cam, uh, can you hit the good folks with the disclaimer? Absolutely. So we're super excited for season two, guys, but we just want to remind you, all this information that we ever talk about, we uh, learn from police reports, information from the internet, the libraries, uh, notes, facts, things of that information. Um, if any of these are incorrect or you're offended or you feel, you know, the um, victim is represented wrong or anything of that nature, Even let us know. gangsters. I don't know how to be represented yeah. wrong. But... <laughs> no, the gangsters are cool. The gangsters are cool. Like... <laughs> I feel bad the gangsters were represented wrong because they they some real OGs. But but if if you if you are related to one of the gangsters, I have a cool gangster story. But I'm not going to say it over the uh, public air because my parents might whoop my butt. So uh, I plead that fifth on you. Um. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, uh, yeah. If we do anything that you think is you you don't approve of or is incorrect information wise, just let us know. The best way to hit us up is through our Facebook page, um, Killinois with Bird and Cam. Uh, we are hoping to expand, so do stay posted on our expansions. We might start uh might start our own website. So yeah. if we do, you can hit us up on that as well. Um. We'll, We'll get back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and uh, yeah, I think expansion is kind of the big uh, goal for season two. You know, yay! Uh, I'm so excited. SoundCloud is our main uh, form where you can get us, but you know, we're really hoping to to stretch out to not just SoundCloud, but iTunes and Spotify. And I know my, when my cousin listens to this, she's like, you know, you do it Spotify right now. I'm always gonna forget. But yes, we can do a Spotify. And we will put it on Spotify. That's for damn sure. We're yeah. going to put it on Stitcher. We're gonna this all these places, Podbean, what have you. We really want to, you know, get it out there, and you know, we want to grow. And and it's all possible with you guys, you know, for sticking with us. Uh, we cannot thank you enough. You do not know how much the support means to us. It is the livelihood. It's the lifeblood. Damn it. Ah. It's, it's the just, bloodline that we need yeah. to survive. <laughs> but yeah, we're super excited. We want to thank everybody. This is, you know, when we first started, I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, let's see how long this goes. And now it's, it's great. We're excited. This yeah. is awesome. And you guys are amazing supporters. So are you ready to do the damn thing? Oh, you damn right. <laughs> yes. So. Our story actually starts on January 16, 1919, actually when the 18th Amendment was ratified. And did you guys know what the 18th Amendment stated? I hope so. Um, but well, according to the National Constitutional Center, after one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, trans or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importance thereof into or exportion or excuse me exportation thereof from the United States in all territories subject to the jurisdiction therefore uh, excuse me again thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited so pretty much what they're saying is there used to be a time where alcohol was prohibited it was illegal could, could, could you believe that Prohibition, man. We actually, my one class in high school, we had a whole speakeasy. It was freaking awesome. Wow. <laughs> it was great. I was like Amelia Earhart or something. We had to do, the, it was awesome. Oh, boy. That means I'll never see you again. But how, yep. Did, <laughs> yep. how did this come to be? 
Well, going back into the last half century, there was an ongoing push to ban the use of alcohol spurred by religious sects and other activists that would be called the temperance movement. And they thought that alcohol was the gateway for all moral practices, namely domestic violence, political corruption, and let alone the denigration of physical health. And in those days, politicians gathered around saloons to congregate on policy-making issues. And one can infer that you get alcohol in the mix, you run down, as my key word, a slippery slope of shenanigans. Saloons were not just a safe haven of politicians, but hell, much of the male population. Now get this, Cam. According to the August 13th edition of the Week New York newspaper, the small town of Leavenworth, Kansas, had 180 saloons in 1880, despite Jeez. having a population of 16,000. So, like, what, one per corner? Yeah. So, in other That's words... probably as many churches in my town. Right. So, it's like saloons are like the McDonald's of its time. Wow. <laughs> and stuff like this made the temperance movement incensed. And with it becomes the, one of the most prevailing issues of the turn of the 20th century. Prohibition supporters who were called dries mobilized like fucking hell. And with support from the U.S. Congress, who introduced the amendment in 1917 which it got ratified in 1919, they finally got what they want, proclaiming it as a victory for moral decency and health. But, of course, let's let's all be honest. People are going to want their drink. Right. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me, especially nowadays. <laughs> Even more people know that people are going to want their drink. And, well, the people who are going to help out these individuals are also known as bootleggers. And... What bootlegging is, I hope most of you guys saw Talladega Nights. It covers it a little bit. I still haven't um, seen Talladega Nights. Like, I've seen, like, little clips here and there. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's white person funny. You would love it. Do you like Will Ferrell? Yeah, I'll love you some Will Ferrell. Fucking hilarious. It's, dude, that's why I always say, dear, sweet baby Jesus, six pounds, I remember, eight yeah, ounces. I remember the commercial, like, like... I slayed over this for hours, and it's nothing I made. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. It's all fast food or something Whoa. like. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great. Great. And then at one point, Will Ferrell's like running around the racetrack in his underwear. Okay, yeah, I remember. I remember that. I remember that. Okay, good, 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 good. Because it's great. It's. I just love Will Ferrell. I love John C. Riley too, though. So. Like do, uh, I didn't see. I, I saw they didn't really good. Didn't get that good reviews for uh, Holmes and Watson. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, so I can't let you know because uh, one of my favorite Will Ferrell movies is Land of the Lost, and it's like the corniest movie in the world. Was that the one where he was like he was divorced or some shit like that, and he had like the garage sale? No, this is where he like went into another dimension time. He was like a doctor and then him oh. and um Danny McBride were there and then they meet Changa. Kenny fucking Powers, Kenny Powers, right? There we go. Kenny okay, we Powers, get it all. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like riding a dinosaur at the end. It's <laughs> insane, but it's hilarious. Okay, let's get this back on track. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys. Just if you do watch Talladega Nights the beginning of it kinda of talks about bootlegging a little bit and the cool thing about bootlegging, though, what I like is it really was kind of sort of the invention of racing, NASCAR. Um, the 
things of that nature. So it's a cool, it's a cool history on um, the whole history about bootlegging, mm. but it is an illegal trade of smuggling alcoholic beverages where such transportation is forbidden by the law. And Smuggling usually takes place to circumvent taxation or prohibition laws within particular jurisdiction. Mm. And like I was saying earlier, they would be transported through cars in trains and ships. Uh, more more uh, like in uh, the deep underbelly of the type of show, like mm. with ghost hour, like 3, <laughs> 3 a.m. And in fact, there were ships at one point carrying over $200,000 worth of alcohol. So, I mean, suffice to say, in the 1920s, bootlegging is a very lucrative commodity. And with the rise of speakeasies, as Cam had referenced, underground bars, alcohol was still being consumed as the prohibition didn't exist. And it's one of these bootleggers, a 5'10", 250-pound Italian immigrant in his 20s, who would be the poster boy of not only that trade, but organized crime itself. So Alphonse Capone arrived in Chicago from Brooklyn, New York in 1990. 1990, shit. 1919. <laughs> and quickly thereafter, he linked up with Johnny Torrio, head of a criminal syndicate that legally supplied alcohol, the forerunner of the Chicago outfit, and was politically protected through the Union Siciliano. For the next several years, Torrio and Capone presided over the expansion of the Chicago outfit as it raked in millions from previous staples such as racketeering, prostitution, gambling, and now, thanks to Prohibition, bootlegging. But what's the problem on top of doing these illegal activities on top of uh, law enforcement? It's competition. Torrio and Capone controlled the South Side and over time expanded business into downtown Chicago and the North Side gang, which was ran by Dean O'Banion. And at first, the outfit and the North Side gang were actually in cohesion, but the two sides began to have problems over territory. Eager to consolidate his turf, O'Banion finessed the outfit out of half a million dollars in an alcohol shipment deal gone wrong. And probably back then, that was a lot, a lot to be gambling around with. And this alcohol shipment that actually went wrong led to Torrio's arrest. And with that, O'Banion was murdered on November 10th, 1924. O'Banion's murder actually sparked a bloody, brutal gang uh, gangland war between the Northside gang and the outfit that would bleed out literally into the next decade. In two months after the O'Banion hit, his former underlines, the Northside gang, including Bugs Moran, who would eventually take over O'Banion's duties, cornered Torrio as he was coming home from his apartment and, uh, at 701113 South Clyde Avenue. And, and for those knowing around the area, yes, Italian Fiesta is only a few blocks away from where Torrio lived. And Cam is looking like... Why the fuck was this on the notes? Well, I'll tell you why the fuck it was in the notes, because Italian Fiesta is the best guy. Oh, you can't say that word, but it's the best fucking pizza in the city. In fact, it's it's Obama's favorite pizza. Oh, is it? Yeah. He actually got it. Have uh, you been to he actually got one in, in Washington. Yeah. Yeah, and I and, and, I and huh. I'm gonna have to go. It's so fucking good. And in fact, you know, while we're talking about addresses, um, there was a um, story on the news yesterday. Uh, Cam uh, has shared it to me that 
Al Capone's former house uh, is up for, uh, was it on the listings? Real estate listings? Yes. And, and believe it or not, Al Capone's, uh, his house, that's only a half a mile where I live. So it's just like... You live in like the most historic part of Chicago. Right? right? I swear to God. And like, I would love to hang out with you there. Well, let's not get shot first. Um... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's. You but look I, at her fresh right I now. She's like, oh yeah, that's right. But yikes! But I did have a question that you probably know. Um, do you think that this whole bootlegging um, prohibition era is what really made um, Capone who he was, or did you think he was already um, who he was before it? Well, I think it's one of those deals where. I guess the, the, the public, and we talk about the people are going to, and it's the 20s. So it's like all of the rules are just thrown out. Like the nation had just got through World War One. They, they won the war. They have all oh, this. They have all, oh, this is before the Depression, but they have this economic posterity. Like it's just a good time. And they, when it's just so much excess, and even though alcohol is banned, they're going to fucking want it. And it's one of those things is that Capone is probably seen to many people as a a is doing something a service to the public. And I mean, you're giving them alcohol, so to these pe- okay, people, like, like, uh, you know what? Maybe in a in a sense, maybe now not in a way of like a Don a John Dillinger, but like yeah, you can you can make that argument. You really can. It's just mm-hmm. a weird. Love my John Dillinger. <laughs> what? It's it's a weird. Like I said, it's just a weird. I didn't hear what you said. You heard. It's a weird atmosphere in. Uh, in it was in a Queens. weird time. Yeah. Like the people love. It just seems like he was just just a weird time. Yeah, and they beloved him. It was like oh, bro. knowing that he is doing all of this ridiculous fucked up shit it's just weird but yeah that's i mean at the end of the day i think and because it is just so taboo you know bootlegging uh, and organized crime because organized crime wasn't it this is the decade where it really started to ramp up to where it's just like you know part of uh pop culture so i think it just made that kind of was like that ingredient that really made it over the top so and long and it's, long crazy to, it's crazy to think too though that's when our grandparents grew up like they grew up during this time this well, was their generation oh but do tell do tell do tell oh no 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 i was just say like that's i knew that's when my grandma because we lived in Chicago and everything, so that's the era they grew up mm. in. Yeah, because like um, my grandparents, at least I know my from my grandma, like she lived in Mississippi and she was born in Mississippi and she didn't move to Chicago to like the forties. So like, oh damn, yeah. But I mean, it's yeah. I think my grandparents were really young, like mm. probably five or three or something like that, but. Um, Something like that. I don't know. I could totally be lying to you guys, too. So. <laughs> I, I, I think. So don't believe anything I say. Don't believe um, Except what I read. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm reading. 
So, but back to our story um, of Torrio actually being uh, uh, te- pretty much cornered as he was coming home um, from his apartment. And for those, like you're saying, who knew the area, go to Italian Fiesta. Well, not then, um, but. <laughs> I'm going to have to go now. And so Torrio was actually severely wounded and he was left for dead. Legend had it that the gun that was used to finish him off actually jammed. Nevertheless, uh, Torrio uh, survived. But following the attempt on his life and the subsequent prison sentence looming, he figured it was time to ride off onto the sunset, which was pretty smart for him. And that's pretty much what he did in 1925, moving to Italy uh, in the process. And as he's related to Paul, or as related to Paul San's book, The Lawless Decade, Bullets, Broads, and Bathtub Gin, uh, San met with Calpone, or Calpone, oh my gosh, Capone to give him full control of the, <laughs> I'm combining his name. Um, but San actually met with Capone to give him full control of the outfit, saying simply, it's yours, Al, it's yours. Me, I'm quitting. It's Europe for me. And according to San, when Toriel retired, his criminal empire grossed about $70 million a year to almost a billion dollars in uh, 2018. Jesus. Wow. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Oh, Yeah, I, I, I know it's my turn to speak, but like, I, I'm just like, man, inflation is a motherfucker. Like, not, you're talking about a billion dollars. Yeah, it is $70 million, and with our inflation today, it is nine hundred ninety-seven billion or billion million dollars, five hundred thousand mm. dollars. So, Capone, which would be nice. Yeah, money. <laughs> That's that guap. But Capone takes over the Chicago outfit, and it was also known at the time as the Southside Gang. And to monopolize their power more, Capone reaches out to more city politicians namely William Hale Thompson, who becomes the mayor of Chicago in 1927 to get some insulation from law enforcement. And that makes Capone that much more impenetrable. Oh, I just botched that word. Just make him more... uh, (laughs) God. It just makes him that more untouchable. There we go. Untouchable, if you guys ever saw the untouchables, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Capone has the money. He has the resources needed to thrive in this prohibition era. And now with Mayor Thompson in his back pocket, he's safe from law enforcement. In fact, there's not a stress to say that there are some cops on the take. <laughs> a crook uh, Chicago police officer. What a novel concept. But he has all of these things. But there's that one little bug he's trying to swat. And in this case, his name is Moran. So the war between the outfit and the Northside gang, you can say is probably the bloodiest period in 1928 that year, according to a 1930 article by reading Eagle newspaper, Chicago actually saw 498 murders. And obviously there's still an issue to this day with gun violence and such with murders that are higher than this around 530 um, last year. But Compared to what it was, it's not much of a drop-off, especially going on in the 20s. And this war actually reached uh, crescendo on September 7th, 1928. Antonio Lombardo, Campone's uh, advisor, uh, to those who've never actually watched The Godfather. I was thinking safety, conciliary. Sorry, I had to zoom in. (laughs) I was like, I had to zoom in. I don't know why I didn't just know that. Um, 
but yeah, great movie. You guys should watch it. Well, everybody, um, you have to have watched the Godfather people. But. Yeah, and Scarface. Scarface was good too, but Godfather is just like, I feel like it's just, it should be in a history book. Yeah. You know, I've seen, uh, for the first time, I saw The Godfather 2, like, from start to finish on Sunday. And like, I don't think I've seen it fully from start to finish. It is, it's like fucking five, six hours, well, it's every with commercials, but it's just so great. So great. Oh, man. Oh, man. But, um, anyways, back to Mr. Antonio Lombardo and Capone. Um, he, uh, Lombardo was actually shot down alongside his bodyguard, Joseph uh, Ferrara, which, you know, kind of sucks because he's supposed to be a bodyguard. But the rumor and innuendo has it that the mob actually had a hit by an alliance of the Joe Leo gang. Oop, give me one second. Sorry. And uh, the Moran led the Northside gang. With Moran ordering this death um, by sending two of his hitters to do the job with the help of Leo. Although that's never actually been confirmed who those men actually were. Uh, many actually believed it to be one of, if not both, of the Gussenberg brothers, Frank uh, Tight Lips and Peter. Now, we've been discussing, really discussing many, uh, mainly Capone and versus Moran. Um, but Leo did have a bone to pick with Capone as well. The two were actually former associates until a really bad fallout ended up with Leo trying um, to assassinate Capone. So, yeah, my friendship would end pretty quickly after that. Mm. And he actually tried to murder Lombardo as well on multiple occasions since 1927. And this, in turn, pretty much instigated a war with the Southside gang that resulted in numerous deaths, including Leo's brother, Dominic. And, of course... You whack the advisor. And there are obviously bound to be some great consequences and ramifications. So after you take out his advisor, Capone is probably pretty pissed. Actually, mm -hmm. he's really pissed. And he really wants to get back in the worst way at Leo and Moran. And not just associates and soldiers. He wants all the smoke. And in that case, all of Leo. We go to October 23rd, 1930. So I, well, Leo... I guess, left the residence of Patsy Presto. No, I don't know. Yeah, Aleo, Aleo. Aleo, or... Aleo. I was going to say, I actually know a friend who's Aleo, but they're also uh, not from here, so... <laughs> <laughs> so he left the residence of Patsy Presto, Presto Glimio, Gia Como, uh, it's off to a great start this season, to get his hair cut... <laughs> Suddenly, a gunman in a second-floor window across the street started firing at Aleo with a submachine gun. According to Carl Sidficus in his 2005 book, Mafia Encyclopedia, Aleo was shot at at least 13 times, initially got out of harm's way. 13 times? Didn't you get shot once? But initially, of course. But lo and behold, he landed right at the crosshairs of another, sec another submachine gun. Positioned on the third floor of another apartment block in Well, Ballgame Aggle. The two gunmen slipped into the night, and Aleo's body was loaded into the taxi cab and taken to Garfield Park Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. And get this, Cam, according to Sifficus, the coroner eventually removed 59 bullets, weighing over a pound from his corpse. Times. Yeah. Holy cow. 
it, and, and, and it is one of those things is that it's something about this era, and maybe it's a submachine gun, but what is it about overkilling? And we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it's just like... We whoa. are so angry in this era. Yeah. So angry. And it's something about, and I was just thinking about this when I was doing the notes, is like, you know, it's, it, of course we have a terrible problem, you know, with gun violence and, and the like in this city, in America, to be specific. But you don't see something where somebody, an uh, uh, incident where, or somebody gets killed, they get sh- uh, shot all of these times. It's just very, like, and, and in many of these cases are personal. Some are, yeah. you know, unfortunately, a uh, case of my mistaken identities more often than not. But, like, some of these cases are personal. You don't see, you know, sometimes one shot does the trick. But these people... Like, 59 bullets? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, we see people get, well, we hear about people getting shot seven times, 16 times, Mm -hmm. but 59 times? That's over halfway to 100. Like, he must have looked like Swiss cheese. He had to look like Swiss cheese. And when he was out of the way, what became of Moran? Well... Before the hit, Capone actually had that same mindset of just cutting the snake's head off when he received intel that Moran and his gang would actually meet up at a Dillapet, uh, excuse me, meet up at a garage at Lincoln Park. Which finally brings us to, well, this entire story and what we're all here for. February 14th, 1929. And before we get into that, we're going to be actually describing an expert of Jeffrey Gusfield's 2012 book, um, Deadly Valentines, which was actually just released a few few years back, which we actually highly recommend you guys read. If you like to read, it's a great book. Um, But the beginning of the book um, is a detailed firsthand perspective of Sergeant Thomas J. Loftus, a veteran of the Chicago, Chicago Police Department, actually for over 30 years. And he's been documented over the years in newspapers, books, eyewitness testimonies, and as we're going to talk about that day, which uh, would actually be known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, it really boils down to the essence of what it's like to be experiencing history, a traumatic life-altering experience, actually, as it happened. And he actually starts his morning at 6 or 36th District, uh, the station house at 5001 North Hudson Avenue in an Old Town neighborhood. And it is what you would expect on a February morning um, in Chicago, 15 degrees, snowy, and that's pretty much the damn near uh, week's forecast in that city, um, which really hasn't changed too much. Um, so Loftus is shooting the shit with the local street kid, Billy Rudd, who actually occasionally stops by the station for coffee. At 10.45, the uh, station desk sergeant actually answers the phone from Mrs. Landsman. And Loftus hears the death sergeant sign of the conversation. And what he hears is he tries to calm down Mrs. Lanson in the other, at the other end of the wire. The death sergeant actually hangs up and tells Loftus that the rumor and innuendo is that there was a plethora of gunfire heard at 2122 North Clark Street. So Loftus is the only cop in the station being that everybody else is on parole, on patrol, <laughs> parole, on patrol. And he spots a telephone company electrician who is working on the alarm switch box near the front desk and asks him for a ride. 
electrician uh, agrees, and Billy Rudd tags along for the ride. And just kind of think about that for a second. A cop and two civilians just casually going along to a potential crime scene. Not in the hey, police you want to come with me to... Like, wow. Hey, you're the lockdown fire. You want to come with for a ride? <laughs> like, yeah. 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 <laughs> Niggas in 1929 really must have been in their bag to do some uh, shit like this because there is no way in hell that would happen today. But they get set to leave and they run into one of the squad cars. And Loftus Martinus the two officers up inside that they should tag along to Clark Street. As with every call from then and now, it could be something or it really could be nothing, but just for precautionary measures. And for precautionary measures, let's bring two civilians because <laughs> why not? Because <laughs> why not? This is like some shit and, a movie. Like, I'm, it's I'm, for, for some weird reason, I'm thinking about when I did these, now I'm looking over the notes and reading this. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called, and we'll be quick on this, but it was this movie called uh, A Cop and a Half with Burt Reynolds, and the premise of the movie is he is a cop, and his partner is a six-year-old kid. Yes. <laughs> Hence, cop and a half. But yeah, back to the notes. That's funny. And the trio, so Loftus, the electrician, and Rudd get to Clark Street, and they actually see a small crowd congregating by the garage where this so-called gunfire was said to be heard. Uh, Loftus, with Billy Rudd following behind, right uh, enters the lobby of the building, and off the bat, there's this protrude smell, just about like a mixture of concrete, gasoline, wet cloth odor, and gunpowder. Um, that smell actually leads Loftus and Rudd towards the garage, and inside, a split ch- second changed their entire world. Shit went from zero to a hundred real fucking fast. Yeah. <laughs> and according to Deadly Valentine, Loftus spots man trying to crawl toward him. Quickly recognizing him as Frank Gustenberg, a ga- uh, his nickname in the gangster lifestyle is Hawk. And Gustenberg is dressed in a dark suit and an overcoat. And it, there's smeared uh, crimson trail all over the place, so all behind him and everything. Half blind and dying, Gustenberg recognizes the police officers. And he just begs, for heaven's sake, just get me to the hospital. He's begging for his life. And Loftus, as Gus Field later writes, frantically commands Billy Rudd to go back outside and guard the door. And he's yelling in the process, call an ambulance, call Deputy Commissioner Wolf and the Bureau of Investigation. Call the switchboard, call everybody. Um, Loftus kneels down next to Gustenberg, who is just fucking red, just crimson red all over the place. Um, the product, he's the product of being shot so many times. Fortunately, those, uh, um, interested, uh, excuse me, uh, 14 of those with his clothing, they were shredded. So Loftus is Gus Field Wright's has seen a share of dead bodies in his 30 years as a Chicago cop, especially during this time. So gunshot victims, stabbing victims, bloated corpse pulling out of Chicago River, Lake Mission, Michigan. But never in his life has he ever imagined or seen evil and grotesque as the sight he saw right in front of him. So he turns to his right, and it's just a wall of bodies. As you can see in the crime photos, four of the dead lie together. Um, Three of them are vertically positioned with the brick wall on their backs, and one is on his stomach. 
jammed up against the wall at their feet. Uh, a fifth body lies to the left in a manner that Gus Fale had described was a light color fedora positioned strangely on his chest as if someone gently placed it there. To his left, another body lied under the corner of the room, slumped against a chair, and several of them have been shot in the head and two lied with lumps of their own brain. So, you, uh, I mean, fuck. Thank uh I'm not having an eight before we recorded, but we'll have photos for you guys if you want to look. Yeah, and and that's another hallmark, and that's another thing that's really a hallmark of these gangland shootings. It's the publicized crime scenes, and I bring this up because in say cases like OJ, JFK, and um, if you do scour around the internet, you will find it through arduous digging at your own risk. Uh, but Murders like these, uh, murders like the many gang-involved deaths in that era, Bugsy Siegel, John Dillinger, it's front-page news photos of sorts, something that, you know, you can't say for the OJ incident or JFK's assassination. And I, I want to do a quick um, off-topic with, uh, I remember um, when I was covering uh, the Curtis Loveless uh Murder Trial, which um, you guys, uh, we did talk about it, but you guys can find it in our archives on SoundCloud. And I remember when they um, were going to show his, uh, the autopsy photos of, or the crime scene photos of his wife, um, dead. And I just remembered, like, the scene of the courthouse. And mind you, this was the second trial, so in many cases... A lot of people saw it the first time around, so even with the second time, this is my first time, like, I just remember just a, just a gasp in the courtroom. I just remember it was just this chill, and it was just like, oh, and I bring this up because it's like, it, it feels, again, it's just normalized in a way. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy, too, because it is so normalized, mm -hmm. but it's so animalistic to yeah. just destroy another human like that. It's, beyond taking their soul away it's beyond killing them getting vengeance it's literally destroying their body and what they were and what they stood for and it's insane it's insane the amount of anger and frustration and emotion people can have towards one another but the the crazy thing with this during this game time is no matter what no matter what happens, they had this level of loyalty, and we'll get into that uh, more into this story. Mm -hmm. But um, Loftus actually leaned down to hear Gussenberg moaning over uh, the ceaseless railing of the dog, and its echo was pounding against the brick walls and concrete floors, so you can only imagine what it sounded like. Mm. And the dog actually looked like some kind of shepherd, and it it was chained to the axle underneath the truck that was actually being repaired. And the animal is just running and lurching insanely into the air and violently being pulled back when it reaches the end of the tether. And all Loftus yells was, do you know me, Frank? And of course he does, which he responds, yes, you are Tom Loftus. And Loftus says, Frank, who did this? What happened? And Gosenberg roams, and it's like this gargling sound in his throat won't talk. Now, we did say um, when we originally introduced Frank Gosenberg that he, his nickname, even though said it was Hawk, 
it was tight lips. Well, when he was alive, he was known as Hawk. But this, uh, kind of his last words, won't talk. This is what he's named some, which is where he gets the name of tight lips. And let's just decide, uh, dissect that further for a quick second. Now, we have established that these men are gangsters. And even to his dying breath, Gusenberg upholds this this code within gangland, this code of silence, if you will, that even if it might solve my murder, I am still not snitching. And as weird as it sounds, it's just like a crazy level of still respect for these people. You just got, you and your seven or six other of your members of the gang got annihilated and you weren't expecting it Mm -hmm. yet you still have the respect and uphold the entire code of the OG gangsters, I guess you could say. Yeah. And that's what I guess fascinates me the most about that entire generation is like we were saying earlier, it was one of the bloodiest, if not bloodiest times, um, not counting today's standards um, and issues we're having with gun violence, but that will always be remembered in in history. And it's just insane that people still respect you even after you try to kill them. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, back to Gussenberg not snitching. All Frank could say was, you're in bad shape. And Gussenberg groaned and closed his eyes and just said, for God's sake, get me to the hospital. And Loftus tries again, who did the shooting? And all Gussenberg could manage was, I refuse to talk. And Loftus just let him know, the wagon is coming. Frank, is your brother here too? And Gussenberg really tries to focus on the policemen, but his eyes are already all black, like a, de- like a dead dog's, yes, as he gulps. Frothy blood bubbles across his rapidly blooming lips actually started to appear. And... The last thing that Loftus could say was, were you all lined up against the wall? As Gussenberg's eyes began to roll to the back of his head, all he said was, won't talk. Wow. So the two lacking officers uh, that um, encountered Loftus and Rudd and the electrician, um, Tom Christie and George Love, arrived along with the ambulance driver and the attendant. And Loftus ordered them to hurry Gussenberg over to Alexian Brothers Hospital which was the closest hospital. And they loaded Gosenberg onto a gurney, and Lofus spotted uh, Gosenberg's brother, Peter, who was slumped in a chair in the far corner. And he walks over and he sees that Peter is dead. Uh, Lofus doesn't recognize any of the other uh, men, and it occurs to him that someone else might be alive, though he doubts it. And he yells for the medics to get a doctor. And a few minutes later, a uh, doctor, a neighborhood doctor, was summoned from his nearby office and quickly examines the other man, and he says, uh, as described in Goose by uh, Gusfield, Jesus, uh, they are all dead. So, who were the victims? Of course, you know, there's Frank Gussenberg, who whipped his brother Peter, uh, who we just mentioned. They were key hitmen and reportedly suspects to the aforementioned Lombardo hit. And the other victims of the massacre were Albert Kashalik. Uh, Moran's uh, second in command. Um, there was Adam Hayer, the bookkeeper and business manager of the Moran gang. John May, uh, a car mechanic for the Moran gang. Um, Albert Wayne Shake, who
who managed several cleaning and dyeing operations from uh, Moran. And his case is very peculiar because he was mistaken for George Moran, for Bugs Moran by not only lookouts across the street on the morning of the massacre, but the alleged gunman as well. After all, they had the intel that, well, Moran's going to meet up with, the, uh, with his gang at this garage. So they're thinking, okay, this is him. We got him. Now, it wasn't. So Moran was supposed to be with the men. But what happened? The night before, an associate possibly compromised or maybe in on the plot with uh, Capone and his men had called Moran and offered him a truckload of whiskey from Detroit that could be his for only $57 per case. Remember, guys, this is bootlegging Prohibition era. So in response, Moran is said to deliver the shipment around 10.30 a.m. Uh, in the garage, which was used as a distribution point for the gang, where he and his men would retrieve the booze. However, Moran was under the weather and ended up not going, and in his place was Reinhard Schwimmer, an optician who, although friendly with members of the gang, did not have a reported criminal back background. So, yeah, he ended up being, you know, ended up losing his life, just for tagging along. And it, it, it's crazy, too, just to see the array and levels of gang, the gangsters that were there. You had people who were, looked like they ran, you know, laundry mats. You had people who just did bookkeeping. Um, and I read somewhere, too, that they actually thought that um, Moran was um, just running behind, was on his way to, to this before... Um, right before everybody got gunned down. So if you can find, uh, there's a lot of different um, rumors going around that, you know, he was sick, he was under the weather, mm-hmm. he was actually en route there. Um, so it's kind of cool to see, you know, which ways that goes. Um, but the investigation actually quickly got underway. And from the onset, eyewitnesses actually came forward to give their account on what happened. Mrs. Landsman, the frantic witness who called the police in the first place, heard the gunfire. And while her mother saw a police squad car coming out of the garage a minute later. And their neighbor, Josephine Morin, who lived directly across the street from the crime scene, also saw the same thing. So from February 15, 1929, edition of the Chicago Tribune, as referenced on the uh, chicagotruecrime.com, Morin describes her observations as, Two men in uniforms had rifles and shotguns as they came out the door. And she says that there were two or three men walking ahead of them with their hands up in the air. It looked as though the police were making arrests, and they all got into an automobile and drove away. And as revealed in William Helmer and Arthur Bielik's 2006 book, The St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Morin and Lansman received the letter two days after the massacre. According to the authors, the letter addressed to Moran said, quote unquote, to whom it may concern, that's the best piece of work here for a long time. Lots more to follow. You better keep your mouth shut. The letter for Landsman said, please keep your mouth shut or you will know or you know what will happen to the both of you. Keep out of our troubles. Don't forget shy boys. Now, we've talked in past episodes about snitching and the repercussions about uh, this code of silence that even in debt Frank Gusenberg held up to. And it's just one of those dealings that for almost a century now, there is the other hallmark of 
again, reporting to police or going public with something of this magnitude and you're aptly going to put yourself out there directly or indirectly in harm's way. And that's what appears to happen to Lanceman Morin. And Morin was so afraid for her life that she quickly moves out of the state. And um, the only witness could find uh, police officers and there's not actual connection with Al Capone and the murders other than him being rivals with Bugs, even though it uh, all signs with the rumor and innuendo point to it. So it it's just a, you know... To this day, it is unsolved. But and it's yeah, I was gonna say it's it's again crazy because we all know the hatred that Capone and Bugs had towards one one another, especially off of recent incidents. Mm-hmm. But we also forget too that just like today, we have crooked cops, and if a crooked cop feels like he's being cornered, he's gonna do what he knows, and that's to attack. Yeah. So, um, and this ends part one, because even though, like I said, this is an unsolved murder and, you know, uh, we're going to, part two is going to be examining the theory of, okay, was it Al Capone? Because all signs, again, points to him having involvement. Again, he's, he, he has the means and he has the motive to do it. But let's say, who, who could it be other people involved? Other uh, groups, gangs, and that's what pretty much chapter two is going to be talking about. And of course, we're going to be talking about uh, suspected gunmen. We're going to be talking about more about Capone and what becomes of him after this. I mean, he has his main competition out of the way. He owns Chicago. You think everything is going to be Daisy Rosies, but again, part two. You have to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, we have to hear. We'd love to hear what you guys think of our part one, just from you know Capone, from the before stories with Capone, um, to pretty much up until the murder. And it's crazy to see that people actually saw these individuals being walked away. Yet we have no idea who these people are. Yeah. Yeah, and so we are excited. And again, this is episode one of season two. And, you know, this is kind of hopefully I like to say, you know, we got off sidetrack a little time. But I mean, that's the kind of like the hallmark <laughs> of our chemistry. Like, well, fuck it. Uh, that's who we are. And um, again, we are going to be back next week. Uh, yes. Uh, to finish this dish yeah. off, these are yeah. some, some fucking badass gangsters. Yeah. It's all I have to say. And, and you know and what? Oh, you go first, but uh, there's no remorse. There is no empathy and you know, nowadays they talk about gangs you know, being family on the streets for one another and this is just a whole different level of just business. Yeah. And I mean, I would say family, but at the same time, everything was business. They would kill off your family if they had to it's just crazy and i i really wonder too like i know other countries have um types of you know gangs like you know you have the uh, green street hooligans and stuff but like are we like the ogs of like gangsters like i don't is this an american thing like i feel like 
Well, you know, New York likes to take credit, and, you know, it goes without saying to fuck New York, but, you know, with the five families, <laughs> and, like, I, I guess, you know, but it everything, like, it's just one of those things that when you think of organized crime, when you think of the mob, you think the first name that's going to pop out is, pop up, is Al Capone, and I guess it's just... You know, every it started in Chicago. Like when you think of all this stuff, yeah, New York and Detroit and New Orleans and all these places. Yes, but I mean, it really started. You know, in my opinion, in my biased opinion, in Chicago, or at least the mainstream media explosion. It started yeah. in Chicago. Oh but, yeah, most definitely, and it's just fascinating because that is American history, and mm-hmm. I just find it. And this correlates to whole, you know, we're going to probably be discussing this at one point too, you know, when the whole war on drugs became a huge thing in the U.S., that became our main focus. At one point, alcohol was our main focus. Yeah. Um, so it's just crazy to see our generations and just see the difference between what they decide to be on the main focus on why, I don't I don't know, but mm-hmm. hey. And you know that's something... Before we sign off, it's something that really, with season two, that I think it's going to be like a running, like, I really want it to be like a running theme, which is like organized crime in this city, just, it's very, very fascinating when gangsters, um, we've talked, we've talked a bit about uh, John, John Dillinger, and we have to do an episode on that, and um, I don't know if you know about this guy, Sam Giacana. But uh, he eventually, and we have to do an episode about him as well, if only not just for, you know, because he ended up being uh, head of Chicago Outfit in the 50s and 60s. But not only just for that, but rumor and innuendo is that he may have had involvement in a certain assassination. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't doubt that way at all. Mm-hmm. That, so we are that... going to... I know we wanted we all we, we wanted to get this JFK episode somehow tied in, and that's kind of like, yeah. So that um, it's gonna be great, guys. It's gonna, be, gonna great. be a fun season. So again, guys, um, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the sponsors, uh, Media Alley, uh, supporting us. It's just gonna get better. It's just gonna get better, and support. We're just gonna get that much better, and. Hell yeah, you guys rock. Thank you. Yeah. Share us, like us, uh, do the whole shebang. All right. And for Cam, this is Bird. Um, we will be back next week for uh, part two of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, again, uh, be there or be, or be killed, killed, bitches. bitches.